Welcome to another episode of The Envelope. This week, we have the Oscar-nominated director, Darren Aronofsky. His new film is The Whale. The movie stars Brendan Fraser, who has been getting rave reviews, and so is the supporting cast that includes Hong Chow, Samantha Morton, and Sadie Sink. Mark, why don't you give us a snapshot of what the film is about? Well, Brendan Fraser plays a man trying to reconnect with his estranged daughter, Ellie, as he knows he's nearing the end of his life. In this adaptation of the play by Samuel D. Hunter, who also wrote the screenplay, Frazier wears a prosthetic bodysuit to give him the appearance of weighing some 600 pounds, and the praise for his performance has really revived his career. Yeah, you know, it's been very touching to see how Brendan has been taking in this moment. After mostly disappearing from the spotlight for years, I think it was at the Venice Film Festival where he got that standing ovation and got really emotional. It was very sweet to see because so many of us remember him as a, you know, as a leading man of lighter, dare I say, less sophisticated movies. And The Whale is really showing us a new side of him as a performer. It's funny, in the interview, Aronofsky talks about how he really hadn't seen those other movies like George of the Jungle or Encino Man. And so then we get into sort of like how he and Brendan Fraser created this performance, because you really have to remember that, I mean, Aronofsky has directed four performers to an Oscar nomination. Natalie Portman, of course, won for Black Swan. But there's been some controversy about this new film, right? Yes, the movie has stirred up uh, no small amount of discussion around its depiction of obesity. But being a lightning rod is really nothing new for Aronofsky, whose dark Challenging films have often been provocative and divisive, right from his debut feature, Pie, to movies like Requiem for a Dream, The Wrestler, Black Swan, or Mother. But in conversation, he's it's surprising. He's actually very thoughtful and reflective and even a little bit sweet. Sweet? I, I wasn't expecting that. I am intrigued. Let's get to it. For the Los Angeles Times and The Envelope, I'm Mark Olson. And I'm joined today by Darren Aronofsky, director of the new film, The Whale. Darren, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. And now looking at your body of work, I mean, going all the way back to your first film, Pie, up to The Whale, you've really maintained such a sense of originality as a storyteller. And in particular, as Hollywood has changed over the years, has it become more difficult for you to navigate? I mean, especially as things have become geared towards ongoing intellectual properties, sequels. How have you kind of maintained that sort of originality as a storyteller? Well, thank you for those nice words. It's a good question. Uh, the business has changed a lot. It's almost unrecognizable from when uh, I began uh, having no money trying to make a film like Pie literally 25 years ago. Back then, you needed to raise money to buy film, and distribution has completely changed. When Pi came out, it was either a theatrical release or nothing. But now, there's so many different ways to tell stories and so many different uh, lengths of time that I think it's an exciting time. I know part of what I find so fascinating about your career is that Whenever you've kind of moved towards more conventional commercial success, you often seem to kind of swerve away from it. <laughs> and then even your biggest scaled films like The Fountain or Noah or Mother, in many ways, those are your weirdest movies. Why do you think that is? Well, The Fountain and Mother were very small films, just to be clear as well. Noah was uh, definitely, um, you know, my, my superhero movie. I, th I just think it's whatever it takes to make a film. 
It's uh, certain films need a big crew with a lot of resources. And then there's other projects that also move me deeply and have characters that I um, relate to in a very, very deep way and want to share them with the world and spend a few years of my life thinking about them, studying them, figuring out their worlds, immersing myself into their emotional reality. I don't think I'm really thinking about size or scope. I wish I was more, but but really it's always just chasing the the characters and the stories and trying to figure out how to bring them to life. And you often refer to yourself as an independent filmmaker and and you've talked a lot about how you find the sort of limitations and challenges of that to be something you enjoy and you're energized by. How do you turn the sort of, you know, what other people would see as limitations or roadblocks into something that, like, you know, keeps you going? You know, art doesn't exist without a frame. You need a boundary. You need to really pay close attention to the edges of your frame. What can I do with this that it will surprise people, that will interest people, that will move people, hopefully? That's the challenge of, of it is like, look, everyone's got limited resources. Well, maybe not everyone. There are certain filmmakers that get a lot of gifts, but even them, there's certain limits up there as well. But I, I kind of like it. I like it. Look, mother was in a single house and then the well's in a single room. But how do you make a single room cinematic? That was, for me, the challenge. And the worst day of every filmmaker's life, and any filmmakers listening to this will relate, is, is the day your editor shows you the assemblage, which is basically <laughs> you've been on set busy, working crazy hours, and your editor's been working really hard to put together the scenes as best as he or she or they can. And then they present to you this kind of assemblage of all the work you did, and it is the most depressing day of your life. But for the first time on The Well, it was actually a great day for me because I watched a extra long version of The Well that was not my cut, that was very unfinished, but I was like, hey, the film is not claustrophobic. There's still a lot of work to do, and it's going to take me the next year to get it into shape, but I think audiences will be really moved by the film. And now before we dive a little more into The Whale, I I want to ask something where there seems to be a through line across your Mm. films. There's this tension between religious faith and scientific reason. Mm. And what what draws you to that as a theme? Like why, is that a question you feel like you're trying to answer for yourself? Where have you seen that in my work before? I mean, I think it's going back to to Mm. Pi and it's sort of like, you know, the exploration of, of... Math and yeah. religion. I think in Requiem for a Dream, the fountain, yeah. Noah, then it comes through, I think, very much in the whale as as well. Is it something you don't sort of recognize in your I, work? It's it's not fully conscious. It's hard to say what attracts me to a project and what keeps bringing me back. A lot of these projects take a long time. Um, the whale was a 10-year process. Noah was something I was interested in making since I was a teenager. Black Swan was over a decade There's something in there that is very truthful to me, that is interesting to me, and I keep chasing it. But I'm not ever, I don't really ever break it down. The Whale, I find, has a lot of religion in it, and that comes a lot from Sam Hunter's upbringing. He he came up Mm -hmm. with a religious upbringing, and so I was honoring that as I was honoring many things in the script that weren't my story. They were 
they came from Sam's soul and spirit. And I spent a lot of time with Sam, talking about it, trying to understand it. For me, I think religion, the stuff that has always fascinated me about it is religion as myth. I mm-hmm. find mythology extremely powerful. I'm less interested in belief. I'm more interested in the power of story. We all know the story of Icarus didn't happen, that it's a myth. Yet, if I bring up the story of Icarus, we all understand what it means. And that's kind of the power of these stories, which are these incredibly old stories that everyone knows. But let's not fight over who the stories belong to or if they really happened. They're much more powerful when we say, wow, what is the meaning behind this story and why were we telling this story and how does it relate to us as 21st century humans Mm -hmm. and how can we maybe learn from this to move forward? Because even another way it seems like you've been exploring some of these same themes is in the documentaries that mm. you've been becoming involved in and producing. I mean, the the recent Nat Geo docuseries yeah. Limitless deals with these ideas of mortality and acceptance. What have you kind of enjoyed about, about working in the documentary space? Oh, well, I love the documentary space. I actually, when I first started filmmaking, uh, the teachers that I first had, Alfred Gazzetti and Rob Moss, came from that world and they were very much into cinema verite and it's it's where i started my studies as a student and so i've always loved documentary wanted to be involved in that world for a long time and of course i'm really um was originally trained as a field biologist and my partner ari handel is a neuroscientist so we've always been deep into the sciences and uh, we were super excited about this idea of making a show filled with science and bringing it to the world Limitless does have a direct connection to my fiction work. I made a film back in 2006 with Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz called The Fountain, which was about a man searching for eternal life. And back then, longevity science was kind of a joke. There was actually a a line in the film that Hugh says where he goes, death is a disease and um, I will cure it. And I actually cut it out of the film because I thought it was ridiculous and people would laugh at it. And But then... Before we went out with the movie, I went back to to Warner Brothers. I said, you know what? I really want to put that line in. And it was a big fight because the film was closed. And back then it was hard to make changes. But they let me do it. And I got it into the movie. And now there are people that talk about death being a disease and spending billions of dollars trying to solve aging. And, (laughs) And so it's weird how the science fiction of The Fountain has become the reality of 21st century America in many ways. I think it's... It's, there's a lot of aging boomers and Gen Xers who are like really terrified of death. And so I was like, it's time to turn this into a docu-series. And do you see a strong connection between your science background and your filmmaking? Maybe as I approach filmmaking a little bit. You know, I, I, I was educated with the scientific method, which I think is just an amazing way to think about the world and ask questions about the world. I think curiosity is so important. And that's what science is all about, is, is curiosity of, of the world around us, of, of the world inside us. And now when you first saw The Whale, it was on stage, yeah. and then you approached playwright Sam Hunter about turning it into a film. Did you go there that night looking oh. for material? Like, like, Well, to be honest, <laughs> as any storyteller, I'm always looking for material. When I walk down the street and I see people interacting on the subways of New York, I'm taking notes. Uh, I was always kind of in high school that uh, very much a wallflower where 
I just was slightly outside of it, you know, and just watching and probably through life, I'm still that way. I, I love people watching. As far as the well, I remember reading uh, the review in the New York Times and being like, wow, what a bizarre, crazy story to try to bring to the stage. What a unique character. So I was fascinated to go see it. And when it started, they it was just characters that I, on the surface, could never understand or relate to. But by the end of the play, my heart was broken and I knew these characters like I knew members of my family. Hmm. And that is the great writing of Sam Hunter, who basically slowly peels away layers of an onion. This would embarrass him, but it's like watching Tolstoy or something where basically every scene you learn a little bit more about a character and the relationships and it just starts all getting together in your brain and just slowly builds and builds and builds. And I was deeply moved by the play. Hmm. And so the next day I reached out to Sam and we got together and I knew it would be a challenge to turn this into cinema. But the amazing thing about movies, what, what I really love about cinema is that it is this great exercise in empathy and that you can watch a movie about any person in the world. And if it's an honest, truthful portrayal, you will be brought into their life, into their circumstance, because we're all human. As you said, it took you some 10 years to get the movie made. And I would imagine on the one hand, that can be a frustrating mm -hmm. thing, but also does your relationship to the material change over that of time? Course. Like for you, like how does it kind of evolve over those 10 it's years? It's always evolving, but look, it, it is unfair to say like I was struggling for 10 years to make this film and got it made. That's not the story. I've, I've made all the movies in that time. I've worked on other shows. I'm always working. Um, but it sometimes just takes the right time and the right place and the right moment to happen. There were many forms of this. At one point, George Clooney almost did it. And I was going to be George Clooney's producer. And I was really excited by that. And a few other directors came and went as we developed the script. But there was always something in the back of my head that was like, I, I, I love this project. And it, was, it would be a very hard one to give away. But I wanted also this story to be told because it was a beautiful story of empathy and human connection and a, and a belief in the human spirit, hopeful. And I just thought it was important. But for me, where it all changed was the Brendan Fraser aha moment. Mm -hmm. No actor that I ever considered or thought about really was exciting me to get me out of bed every day to bring Charlie to life. Because Charlie is, the, the other actors are phenomenal in the film, not to underplay them. And they're great characters, but Charlie is the heart and soul. And I needed to find a Charlie. But when the Brendan Fraser aha moment happened, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And honestly, I didn't even know that much of his work. It was more just seeing his eyes and his soul. And then he came by my office and we met and we sat and I was like, wow, what a gentleman. What a, what a sweet guy who clearly, clearly has a lot to tell the world about what he can mm -hmm. do and hasn't been given opportunity. And for me, that's the greatest. A hungry actor is so exciting for me because I know the challenges of making a movie, especially a role like Charlie, which is emotionally incredibly difficult. I mean, there's sorrow, there's joy, there's mm -hmm. despair, there's hope, 
it's a very, very difficult character to play, but also technically I knew it was going to be hard. It turned out it was five hours in a makeup chair every day for this guy. And he's in every scene except for one little sequence in the middle. He's in every scene of the movie. That's really hard to pull off. And now there's been such a wave of acceptance for Brendan as the movie has been coming out. And it seemed to be a genuinely emotional experience for him. What what has it been like for you to kind of be alongside him as the movies, you know, been playing at festivals yeah. and, and coming out? I mean, it's a huge surprise to be. I did not really understand what he meant for so many people. It, it wasn't like I was bragging, like, oh, I got Brendan Fraser. And people have been comparing it to the Mickey Rourke story. Mm-hmm. but From The Wrestler. But Mickey, I knew mm-hmm. from Sean Penn to every great actor was like, Mickey's the man. I was just like, okay, that makes sense. And no one's working with him. Why? He's still Mickey Rourke, you know. But I did not sense that from the Brendan fans. I didn't know this renaissance was about to happen. (laughs) And I'm thrilled. I'm so happy for the man. And I'm so happy for the fans that that love this guy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's great for, for movies because he's a great, great movie star who hasn't worked for a long time, there's just going to be so many seminal roles in the next 20 years for Brendan to take on because he's back and he's a guy mm-hmm. who can handle it, who he's been through it, and he is ready to work. And I'm just thrilled for him. And then I don't want to seem like we're getting ahead of ourselves yeah. here, but you have previously directed four actors to Academy Award nominations. Natalie Portman won yeah. an Oscar for her role in Black mm-hmm. Swan. Do you feel a special connection to actors? Like, what what is it that you feel like you do with actors that gets them to these performances? It's a collaboration. It's what I love to do. It's it's. Uh, I'm a terrible musician, but if I could be like playing backup bass for <laughs> the Rolling Stones, I'd be there in a minute. You know, it was. It, it, I I just love to jam, and um, that's mm-hmm. what you get to do with actors. It's like we all know the material. We've all read the material. Let's see what you bring. Oh, that's interesting. How about this? Oh, I didn't quite understand it. But, oh, we found this together. And you kind of just kind of are are just playing along. So I love working with actors because they are musical instruments and that they can do this incredible stuff with their emotions and bring it out. And I love Mm -hmm. that kind of time. It's not it's not it's almost a sacred time between action and cut when when the actor Mm -hmm. is opening up and the crew is totally focused and you have these incredible artists in the crew and technicians that are just so focused on capturing and creating this one moment. And when that alchemy is happening, it's, it's just, you know, it's church for me. And do you feel like the way that you work with actors, has it evolved over time? Like, are you, is that interaction different for you now than it was you know, early in your career, say on like Requiem for a Dream or The Fountain? I'm sure it's changed a bit. I think it's, I, you know, Ellen Burson was at the premiere last night. She's a few days shy of 90 years old. And she showed up to my premiere, which was just uh, a blessed moment to see her and, and take some photos with her. But I can remember the first day I met Ellen Burson and I took her out to uh, Coney Island where I grew up. And I had, I think I had a camera with me. I'm sure it was pre-cell uh, phones with cameras in them. And I remember being terrified of just asking if I could take a picture of her. You know, like, so I think I think I'm more relaxed a little bit. So yeah, things have changed, but I think the process is still the same. It's it's about just being present. It really is. When you're on set, 
It's just remaining present and just trying to make the best work you can within that limited amount of time that you have. We all have a limited amount of time, not just in life, but definitely on set. You know, it's it's very limited. And you're just trying to do your best work in every moment. And then you try to surround yourself with people who, who treat the work in the same way. More with director Darren Aronofsky after the break. If you're enjoying this interview and want to keep up with more episodes, follow The Envelope from the Los Angeles Times wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you can leave us a rating and review. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Envelope and my conversation with director Darren Aronofsky. Can you talk a little about working with Brendan specifically as he's in that body suit? Yeah. How does that come to impact, you know, his performance, what he's capable of, how you're interacting with him? I, what what was what was that like? I think it's extremely difficult to work with that. If you could imagine um, just trying to cry or laugh in front of a camera and act natural, but then you suddenly have a couple of hundred pounds of appliances hanging off of you, glue on your face and it's very, very difficult to ignore that and to not be mm -hmm. annoyed by that. So really it was about how do we keep Brendan as relaxed, as cool, as cool meaning temperature wise as possible. You know, underneath that whole suit, he's actually wearing the same thing the F1 drivers wear to keep their bodies cool in, in those burning engines. Basically, we had this, you know, cold water tubes flowing through his body. It's just about trying to keep your actor as relaxed as possible so that when the cameras roll, they can really have the energy to do it. Because it, it was a marathon. I sent Brendan a, a weight vest and arm weights and, and leg weights. Mm -hmm. And I was like, look, you, you're about to run a marathon. You need to be in shape. Not that he wasn't in shape, but like a different type of shape. There was so many things to that performance that are hard to like really relay. But like, you know, if you think about someone who actually weighs 600 pounds, every time they stand up, they are pressing 600 pounds. They're incredibly strong people mm -hmm. to do that. Brendan had to create that and create that illusion of that. So we had this woman, Beth Lewis, who's this incredible movement coach, um, a great former dancer who worked with me. We studied all these tapes and basically had to kind of teach Brendan how to create that illusion. So every time he's moving, it would have been very easy for him to move. But we realized, no, you have to actually counter move. You have to actually leverage yourself to actually move a certain way. So it's, it's not just an emotional performance. It's not just a technical performance. It's also a physical dance to create that character and bring, mm -hmm. and bring the illusion to life. And as the movie's been coming out, there's been some criticism of the casting of Brendan and the use of the bodysuit and simply for the film's depiction of obesity. And I'm just wondering if that was a conversation you were sort of prepared yeah. for? Like, did that surprise you at all that, that that criticism has come up? The film is from the heart of Sam Hunter, who lived his experience and brought his personal experience to the screen. 
And I had Sam with me the entire journey from writing the screenplay, adapting his own work, to being with me every day on set, to watching cuts and being with me uh, and has become a great friend and someone who I was able to ask anything of. And so was so was Brendan. It comes down to the question of like, should stories, certain stories be told? And this is an exercise in empathy. And what I love about Sam's writing is through all of his characters in all of his plays that have incredible challenges, there is this incredible hope for the world. And what I love about Charlie is there's not an ounce of cynicism in Charlie. There is such a beautiful creature inside of him that is trying to do good in the world, to love in the world. But he's a very flawed character. He's selfish. He's made lots of mistakes in his life. But he really, really, really wants to give something back. And I felt that this was a story that should be told. And it comes down to the question of, Mm -hmm. should we tell stories that allow audiences to get into the hearts and souls of characters that most of us judge the second we see them. The first time you see Charlie in this movie, it is very difficult for a lot of people. But within five, ten minutes of the film, you start to understand him. And I promise you, if you go see this movie, it will break your heart. And the feedback we've been getting from the OAC, the Obesity Action Coalition, which also was with us the entire way, when they really feel this is going to open up people's eyes. you got to remember, people in this community, they get judged by doctors when they go to get medical help. They get judged everywhere they go on the planet by most people. This film shows that, like everyone, we are all human. And that we are all mm-hmm. good and bad and flawed and hopeful and joyful and sorrowful. And there's all different colors inside of us. And I think if it does that, if it changes one doctor to look and say, oh, I know someone like that. I, I've met Charlie. And there's a human here. Mm-hmm. And not this creature that isn't human, which is crazy that we even have to say that, that there is that type of prejudice in the world. You know, I, I, I just hope people come with an open heart and pay attention and connect with Charlie and, um, and, and that this film will change people. I really, I really think it can help the conversation. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit just about the title of the film, The Whale. I think people assume initially that it's, you know, simply a reference to the main character of Charlie. But in the story, it becomes that it's also a nod to Herman Melville's Moby Dick. For you, what is kind of that double meaning? There's many, many meanings to it. uh, And that's Sam's writing. And uh, someone last night was like, oh, Sadie's character is The Whale. And it was very interesting. We got into a whole conversation about that. I, I think the title is, it's provocative for sure. It's offensive for some, 
But I think as soon as you watch the movie and you see how it's being used, it really raises a lot of questions and makes you think. For all the attention that's being paid to Brendan's performance, there are such strong supporting performances in the film. You just mentioned Sadie's character as, you know, Charlie's daughter and, and that he's trying to get his relationship back with her. But then also Hong Chow, Ty Simpkins, Samantha Morton. What was it like sort of bu- knowing that this was a story that was so built around this central performance? Yeah. What was it like to kind of also be casting those supporting roles too? Well, Sadie was the first one to join on. The second she showed up, I was like, who is that? That, she is super talented. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, besides being a great actor, by the way, she is a great human being. And her career can be anything she wants it to be. She's so gifted, so talented, so special, so unique. If we're all going 55 miles an hour, she's at 143 miles an hour. Okay, you know what? You can't throw me away like I'm a piece of garbage and then suddenly just want to be my dad eight years later. You left me for your boyfriend. It's that simple. And if you've been telling yourself anything different, then you're lying to yourself. Her performance is so quick. You've seen the film Mm -hmm. a couple of times. I promise you, if you watch the film another time, there are things she's doing that are so quick and so subtle that I've seen the film so many times. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I never even saw that color from Sadie before. She's just moving at such a fast speed. And, And to take that character of teenage angst and to turn it into such a complicated character and to allow herself the mixture of the vulnerability and hatred Really, uh, it was it was so much fun to work with her. So prepared. She's just great. And I don't know why I'm sharing this, because other filmmakers might be listening and they'll want to work with her. And that might make her a little bit less available to me. <laughs> Please don't work with her. Just let her work with me. Hong, Hong Chow. <laughs> wow. You know, like I've been a fan since I saw her in Pain Soundsizing. I was like, wow, she's awesome. Mm-hmm. And I actually asked Mary Vernu, my casting director, get Hong Chow, please, to read. I think she could be perfect for it. And it was during uh, COVID, so it was all casting through Zoom, which sucks. But she used the Zoom camera to block the scene. So the way she moved, she blocked it how I had imagined it. So I was like, all right, one day, if she wants, she is a director. She'll be a director. But what's amazing about Hong... (laughs) is every, every single take she did was different and worked. Brendan tells a funny story. I forgot this. He said it last night and reminded me. I'd be like, at the end of, after we do a few takes, I'd be like, I'd be like Hong, let's do one more. Just entertain us. Do something different. <laughs> just because it was like, it was just amazing. She is so gifted beyond. It was just, it was really amazing to 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 have that type of gift as a director because, you know, that's what it's about. It's about interpretation of text. And she is so able to channel so many different versions that it's it's just so much fun to work with. Ty Simpkins playing a very difficult role, which is basically he has to be innocent. He has to be innocent to believe so deeply, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply in his faith. But he's also a liar. And I don't want to give too much away, but he's he's actually lying the whole time that he is a, belie- a true mm-hmm. believer. Very difficult to find. And then Samantha Morton, freaking legend. You know, <laughs> I've been um, in awe of her talent forever. I needed someone like that who could come into a scene uh, two thirds of the way through a movie and just bring the film up to another level. And uh, what's great about her is 
everything has to be truthful and honest. She's really feeling it. Mm -hmm. She's really feeling it. I know I can't get this idea out of my mind that you mentioned that Sadie's character like is the whale. Like it, I, I, I like the fact that someone like brought this to you <laughs> as like an interpretation. What do you make of that? Like, do you, I haven't do you, really broken it down. There was. Do you think Sadie is well? I think the mm -hmm. whale is. I'm, I, I'm. This is the first time I'm saying this out loud, so I'm. So Sam might go, "You're an idiot." Not that he ever would, but <laughs> I think the whale. It, it's very much like the metaphor in in um, Moby Dick. They're chasing the whale, but that's not really what they're chasing. There's a hole mm -hmm. inside those characters, and I think that's what Sam is playing with. I think there's this hole in these characters that actually the only ones that can fill it is each other. And I think that's what the film's about, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I mean, look, it's very complicated material. I worked with this material for years now, and I'm still learning stuff. There were so many meta levels in his writing, and I'm still learning from it. I still learn from the text. Mm -hmm. I'm so struck to hear the way that you talk about the movie in that, you know, I feel like you have kind of a reputation as somebody who makes these kind of dark, difficult films. And, you know, in this film, one of the last lines in the movie is people are amazing. Yeah. Do you see this as your most hopeful movie? Like there's something just so positive about the film and, and the way you seem to be approaching it. See, I think in the tragedy of the films I've made earlier, um, there is a lot of positivity. Mm -hmm. I think Hubert Selby Jr., Requiem for a Dream, is all about love and what goes wrong. And so I, I do think that's in, in the work. You know, this was the best writer I've had to work with, um, Sam Hunter. He, the MacArthur genius. Sam Hunter is a MacArthur genius for a reason. He really is a great writer. And I was blessed that he trusted me with this material. Sam believes that and, and it's in all of his plays. There's these characters that are always struggling with life, but he really, really hopes that that connection, that people are amazing, is out there. And I think what the lessons of COVID that pulled us all apart, I mean, there was also all the political stuff that was ripping us all apart. It's like, it is paramount that human connection it's crazy that those two words are put together. I mean, humanity is connected, right? And humanity means we're all <laughs> one, right? You just use that one word, humanity, right? We're all the same species. We are connected. The fact that we're so disconnected in so many different ways, um, just trying to remind each other that with all of those gulfs, there is a way back. That with all of Ellie's pain and distrust, and sadness and anger that she can find love hopefully can um, can inspire us it's definitely inspired me hmm and just as you were you know 10 years ago you went to that theater to to first see the play are you now that you've you know finished the whale are you kind of back on the Hunt, do you know like kind of what you're doing next? Or are you sort of like looking for new material now? Like there's there's other things that have been sitting around. There's one thing that's been sitting around for 22 years we're trying to make now. <laughs> but there are there's a few things we're trying to make and get going. Um, you know, 
Limitless is now all over the world. The Territory, if you haven't seen it, my, my a documentary I produced that's on Disney Plus is out. And it's an incredible film by a young filmmaker named Alexander Pritz that's out. Um, so like helping young filmmakers get their films out. We're really trying to do a lot, a lot of that. A lot more documentaries uh, about our love of science. And yeah, trying to figure out my next movie. You know, that's, that's, on the, that's on the docket too. And you also published a, a children's book, Monster Club, which yeah. I, I think is a surprise for a lot of people. Yeah, Monster Club is out on HarperCollins. It's some of my favorite feedback this year has been from 10 and 11-year-olds who have been like really moved by Eric Doodles and his story with Brickman. Well, Darren, thank you so much for taking so much time to, to talk with us today. The new movie is The Whale, and best of luck with everything as the movie's coming out. Thank you, Mark. The Envelope is a Los Angeles Times production. It's produced by Taya Francesca Price and Rachel Cohn and edited by Mitra Kaboli and Lauren Rapp. This episode was mixed and mastered by Mike Heflin. Our executive producer is Hiba Elorbani and our theme music is by Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Matt Brennan, Jasmine Aguilera, Shawnee Hilton, Elena Howe, Kayla Bell, Patricia Gardner, Dylan Harris, Brandon Sides, David Viramontes, and Vanessa Franco. I'm your host, Ivan Villarreal. And I'm Mark Olson. Our next episode is out January 10th. See you then.